In a world of endless options and opportunities, it can be hard to set priorities, even harder to follow them. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah begins a short series of messages on stewardship, clearly identified in God's Word as a priority for believers. Sadly, many choose excuses over obedience. Are you one of them? Listen as David introduces today's message, Straightening Out Our Priorities. Well, thank you for joining us. We're coming to the close of our studies in the month of January, and this is the time when we take a few days and talk about giving and stewardship, what the Bible has to say about it. Not hard for me to do that because I've been doing it in my local church for almost 50 years. Every year I teach stewardship for three weeks, three Sundays. The blessing of that has been multiplied beyond anything I can imagine. Uh, One of the blessings for me has been watching what that has meant for us uh, with our missions giving. We've been able to grow. Uh, When we first started teaching this, we were averaging about $250,000 a year for missions. And this last year, we're uh, over $4 million for missions. That's the result of hearing God's voice and following it and all of the while seeing his blessing in our lives because he promises to bless us when we're obedient. Well, there's a story in the Old Testament about some people, some God people, who got things out of perspective, and it didn't turn out well for them, and they had to learn it the hard way. So let's go right to our Bibles, Haggai chapter 1, straightening out our priorities. Today I want to talk with you about priorities. If you search Amazon on the subject of priorities, what you're going to find out is pretty amazing. Did you know that there are 9,000 books on the subject of priority? And the Harvard Business Review has more than 11,000 sources on the subject, from articles and books and papers and courses and speeches. Apparently, the most iconic training that people do in the world for future business leaders is to try to help them understand priorities. Here's how one author describes the reality that we face today. Choice seduces the modern consumer at every turn. Lattes come in tall, short, skinny, decaf-flavored ice, spiced, and frat. Jeans come flared, bootlegged, skinny, cropped, straight, bleached, rinsed, dark, washed, and distressed, and holes in them. Moisturizer, nourishes, lifts, smooths, revitalizes, conditions, firms, refreshes, and rejuvenates. Faces, noses, wrinkles, and bellies can be remodeled, plumped, or tucked. (laughs) Pictures and music can be viewed, recorded, downloaded, or streamed on all manner of screens or devices. While some of these options have improved our lives, Many of them have just overwhelmed our lives and left us anxious because we don't know which one we should do. Never before has the ability to choose between good alternatives, between what is good and what is better, what is significant and what is not, never has that been more important than it is today. And just what is a priority? Well, if you go back and do a little homework on the word, it's pretty interesting. The word priority has its roots in the 14th century English word prior. And that English word can be traced back to a Latin word meaning former or elder. In the Middle Ages, a prior was the leader or officer in charge of a monastery, a male prior. A nunnery, the female, was a prioress. 
And those institutions came to be known as a priory, a religious community led by a prior or a prioress. Very simply, the prior was the head, the leader, the authority, or the most important person in the religious community. There it is, the evolved meaning of priority, that which is most important among options or choices. So the notion of priorities grew from the simple idea of the most important person in a small community to a bewildering choice of options in the modern world in which you and I live. And priorities are so important, are they not? When I first came here back in 1981, I walked into a situation where I was obviously way over my head. I was 40 years old, believe it or not, I was 40 once. There were so many things here, three different congregations, a college, a high school, missionary organizations everywhere, and I'm just touching on the main things. And as a young pastor, I was overwhelmed. It seemed like I was going to board meetings every night, and I had four children, still pretty young, and I needed some help with my priorities. And I remember asking God about this and kind of going to Him in prayer to help me figure this out. And in the process of doing a study on the Lord's Prayer, I'll never forget this, God gave me four priorities for my life. And here they are. I am a person, and I have a relationship with God. I am a partner, and I have a relationship with my wife. I am a parent, and I have a relationship with my children, and I am a pastor, and I have a relationship with this church. I'll never forget the first time I told this congregation, you are number four. But I got letters that lasted for a long time in my mind from people saying, Pastor, don't ever forget about one, two, or three, because if you do, you got nothing to say to us. So those have been my priorities. Have I lived by them completely? No. But if you've watched me, you know I've given it my best to make those the priorities of my life. God first, Donna second, my family third, and ministry that God has given me to do with all my heart and with all my life. What does that mean? That means that when you select these priorities, some of the things that you would normally do don't get into the process. And let me tell you something else I've learned. If you put priorities in your life, they will be tested. And if they're not still there when they're tested, you don't have them. You just talk about them. To put your family first means a lot of things. For me in that time, it meant being around my children when things were happening with them. I couldn't be there all the time, but I never hardly ever missed their events, especially their sporting events. And when my son David was in high school, they played basketball. He was a very good basketball player, and most of their games were in the afternoon. That was a shock to me when I came here, because in Indiana, all of the games are at night, and they're a big event. Here they were at 3 o'clock, and hardly anybody came. But the games were at 3, so I always made it my purpose to go to the games at 3 o'clock. I'd leave my study, my office, get my car, and wherever the game was, I would go. And one day I was getting ready to go to a game, and there was a call that came up to my office from the first floor that there was a guy who wanted to see me, and he was desperate. Could he see me right now? And I told my secretary, no, I have to go to this basketball game. 
Unfortunately, the way this place is put together, I had to come down the elevator and go through the lobby to get to my car. And he was waiting for me. It's amazing how brash some people can be, especially if they want you to do something. He got right in my face and he said to me, where are you going? You know what I was tempted to say, but I didn't. I just said, I'm going to go see David play basketball. And he went into a rage. He said, my family's falling apart. I don't know what to do, et cetera, et cetera. And you're going to a basketball game. And I heard the Lord speak to me in my heart, and this is what I said. I said, sir, there's four guys upstairs that can help you with your problem, but my son's only got one dad, and I'm going to the game. So I say that now because I want to be the hero of my story. I don't tell those stories very often. I say that because if I say that my family is my third priority and then it is tested and I go another direction, that's not a priority, is it? How many of you know how easy it is for us to see our priorities disappear on us? Does New Year's resolution help you? (laughs) Priorities, whatever we say they are, are only as good as after they're tested. And if you study the Bible, you know that priorities were important. When Jesus came upon the scene in the New Testament, preaching the kingdom of God, it required a reordering of values and priorities. And there are many interesting experiences if you look at the life of Jesus in light of priorities. In fact, there are many instances of Jesus reprioritizing things in the New Testament. In the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, there's a little phrase that is used six times. Jesus uses this phrase, and here it is. You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. In other words, the priority used to be this way, but here's a new take on that priority. And if you go through that section of Scripture, you'll discover that Jesus changed the way people were to think about murder, adultery, divorce, oath-keeping, retaliation, and brotherly love. In other words, he said about adultery, you have heard that you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that if you think wrongly about a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery in your heart. That's a new priority. That's from Jesus. Jesus saying the old was this way, the new is this way. You're Christians now. Jesus was reversing the priorities of the entire religious establishment. For instance, in Matthew 6, 33, he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The most important overall focus in the Christian life is God's kingdom. I am a person, and I have a relationship with God. Jesus prioritized the parables. Did you know that? He said one day that the parable of the sower was the most important. Here's what he said, Mark 4, 13. Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? In other words, this is the most important one, and you don't get it. How are you going to get the rest of them? All the parables are important, but one seems to take priority over the others. One day there were two men who said they would follow Jesus. They said, Lord, let us go first, and then we'll follow you. Let me go bury my father. And Jesus said to them, no, that's not the right priority. The higher priority than following Jesus does not exist. And he corrected their thinking, and he told them they needed to follow him right now. Some people made a priority of pointing out other people's sins. Have you ever known anybody like that? They just delight in telling everybody what's wrong with somebody else. And Jesus straightened that out when he said, Hypocrite, 
First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will clearly see to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. Get your priorities right. When it comes to sins, the Christian priority is his own sin, not his neighbor's sin. When it comes to accumulating wealth, the priority is laying up treasures in heaven and not on the earth. When it comes to discipleship, following Jesus obediently has a priority. Count the cost before you do it. Whether one is building a tower or going to war or following Jesus, the priority is knowing what it will cost before you commit to do it. So you see the whole Bible, the whole New Testament, especially the Gospels, it's just book on priorities. How to do the first thing first. How to get the main thing to be the main thing. How to make sure that you stay focused where God wants to take you and that you don't let your priorities get distorted or little by little to disappear. Following Christ, men and women, is a lifelong process of reordering our priorities. Believe it or not, at this stage of my life, I'm doing some things this year different than I did last year because of priorities. We take off the priorities of this world and we put on the priorities of God's kingdom. It's like peeling off the layers of an onion where there are always new kingdom priorities to discover and to implement. Do we all understand that? Are we together on that? Priorities are kind of like the stuff of life. We're always trying to figure out. You probably are thinking about what you have to do tomorrow and what you're going to do first because it is more important than the other things. And if you need help, there's 9,000 books on Amazon and 11,000 articles for the Harvard Business Review. (laughs) 500 years before Jesus Christ, a group of people just like us were forced to determine their priorities. Like us, they worked hard and they earned, but it was never enough. Their money seemed to flow like sand through their fingers, and these were the Jewish settlers who had returned from captivity to their homeland in Jerusalem. The people of Judah, the two southern tribes of Israel, had been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. After Babylon was conquered by Persia, The Persian king Cyrus gave permission for these captivated Jews to return to Israel for the purpose of re-inhabiting their homeland, but primarily to rebuild their temple. How many of them were there? According to Ezra, the whole assembly together was 42,360. So 42,360 people went back to Jerusalem, and their goal was to rebuild the temple. Ezra says, the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites and all whose spirits God had moved arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. The temple, you see, was a sacred place for the Jews. Our churches today are not like the Jewish temple. We have many churches, but there was only one temple. The temple of the Jews was the place where God dwelt, where the Shekinah glory of God resided And for 70 years, this singular site of worship for the Jews had lain in ruins. It had been totally decimated and torn down. Every brick separated from the other bricks, and the only thing left was the foundation upon which it had been built. So these 40,000-some Jews went back to Jerusalem with this goal, we're going to rebuild the temple. We're going to reinstitute the worship of Jehovah God. We're going to put back together the place where God comes to meet with his people. 
And the initial enthusiasm to rebuild the temple was high. It was their number one priority. The Jews returned to the land of Judah to build the temple. They cleared a place. They laid a fresh foundation for the altar of sacrifice. And within just seven months, the altar of God was reconstructed in its proper place on the slab, and the people began to come to that very basic place without any walls around it at all. They would come there to worship the Lord on the Sabbath. Ezra describes the emotion that was set loose in the hearts of the people just when they got the altar rebuilt. I mean, the project wasn't done. It was just getting started. But the people were so excited. Listen to this description, how they responded to it, Ezra chapter 3. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, listen to this, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. And yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. What a celebration they had. They hadn't even done anything really except lay the foundation and build the altar. It was a great day for Israel, but I need to tell you, it wasn't long before their motivation began to wane, and their enthusiasm for the building project began to disappear, and their priorities began to be reordered. This is the natural order of things, isn't it? This is how it works usually. Many of us can remember how excited we were when we first became Christians. One of the reasons I love to hang out with new believers is because of the excitement they have for Jesus. But let them hang around with us older Christians for a while, and they'll get straightened out. They'll mellow out. They'll just kind of become like all the rest of us. You know, that's what happens. We discover in many areas of life that starting well is easier than finishing well. How's your diet coming? It's easy, is it not, for the luster to wear off? And that's what happened for the Jews. Ezra 4, verse 24, has this very sad note. For the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased. There was a day when none of the Jews came to help with the temple project. Little by little, over weeks, I am sure the number had dwindled, but one day nobody showed up and the work stopped. As you read the rest of Ezra's account, you discover that the work of the returned Jews stopped because there were some people in the neighborhood who didn't like it. They were getting some opposition. But there really was no reason for stopping the work on the temple. They had been given an irrevocable decree of permission from the king of Persia. They had no reason to stop. But somehow along the way, the values of the people began to change. Instead of building the temple, they began to put their efforts into the building of their own houses. I'm not making this up, folks. This is in the Bible. The work of God languished as their personal pursuit of things continued. The book of Haggai contains the messages that Haggai the prophet preached to his countrymen to stir them to action to get back to their priorities. It is probable that Haggai was an old man at the time of his messages. And the people respected him, and they listened as he explained that their neglect of God and his work was the reason for the economic problems they were experiencing in their community at that time. So let me walk through just the first chapter with you. The excuse of the people. Haggai 1 and 2. And the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, 
The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, watch this, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Why did they stop doing what they came to do? They said the time was not right. Haggai's prophecy begins with a complex set of quotations that essentially say this. The people of Israel were saying that it just wasn't the right time to complete the rebuilding of God's house. That was their excuse. The timing wasn't right. The temple needed to be finished, but now was not the right time. It's amazing to read this excuse and realize how common it is even today. We're not opposed to it. We're just opposed to the timing of it. The people felt it was better to return to the fields and harvest their crops than to give priority to God's instructions to rebuild the temple. So not the right time became we don't have time. And the tendency to put off, to procrastinate when it comes to God's work is widespread, is it not? We're always looking for a more convenient time to do what we know we should do now. I don't know of another realm in which the excuse of I'll get to it someday is heard more often than in the matter of financial stewardship. So many people reason, I know I need to do this, but the timing is just not right now, Pastor. After I get this in order, after I get this done, after I pay this off, I just got out of college, I got a big college. So often people with the timing excuse never do find the right time. Let me tell you something that I've reemphasized over and over. It's kind of a new lesson I've learned over the last five years. Whenever we hesitate to do the will of God and we allow time to go by between His instruction and our obedience, we are asking for trouble. Boy, if that isn't a lesson we have learned uh, during these days, I don't know when we'll ever learn it. It's one of the most powerful truths that I have communicated in the last several years. And it is so riveting because it is so visual. Here's God speaking to us, and here's the time between when we hear what he says and when we ultimately respond. And I've been telling everyone that the time between when God tells us to do something and when we do it, that time belongs to the devil. He uses that time to try to dissuade us, to keep us from being obedient, or to be less obedient than we would be if we would just take God at his word. Believe what he says and do it with all of our hearts. That's what happened to the people in the days of Haggai. They forgot to do that. And well, there's more to that story, so I won't ruin it. We'll come back and talk about it some more tomorrow uh, with part two of straightening our priorities. And then uh, Thursday and Friday, we're going to talk about Jesus' forgotten blessing. Uh, We'll finish it all up on Monday this month with to tithe is to trust. Folks, we still have just a few days left in the month for you to get your copy of The Prayer Code. This is uh, O.S. Hawkins' latest book, 40 Scriptures You Can Study, and these are 40 scriptures with prayers in them that you can learn how to pray. You know, if you want to know how to pray, the best way to learn how to pray is to read the scriptures and see how, how the scriptures record prayers. You know, the Lord Jesus was never asked by his disciples to teach them to preach or to travel or any other thing, but his disciples did ask the Lord Jesus to teach them to pray. 
And we pray that simple request today as well. Lord, teach us to pray so that we are difference makers. Prayer is an adventure. It's an opportunity. It's a privilege. And when we pray, God works. So this book is meant to encourage you and strengthen you and support you and not necessarily to make you feel guilty, but to make you feel good. Good because prayer is God's tool to make things happen on the earth today. So when you send your gift, you can request your copy of the prayer code and we'll send it to you. So tomorrow, more from Haggai. And uh, that will blend into what's in this book, as you'll see. So glad you joined us today. Hope you're having a good first month of 2022. And we'll see you here tomorrow. Thanks for listening. For more information about Dr. Jeremiah's special messages on stewardship, please visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected. Our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of O.S. Hawkins' latest book, The Prayer Code. 40 scripture prayers every believer should pray. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions, available in several durable and stylish cover options. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue our series on stewardship here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Turning Point's new 365-day devotional Every Day with Jesus is available now, filled with inspirational readings from Dr. David Jeremiah and paired with Scripture. It will encourage you each day in your walk with God. This popular resource is yours with a gift of any amount in support of this program. And when you give a generous gift of $120 or more, you'll receive four copies so you can share them with others. Learn more at davidjeremiah.ca. That's davidjeremiah.ca. Take the young ones in your life on an unforgettable journey that will get them excited about the Word of God with Airship Genesis Legendary Bible Adventures from Turning Point. Tune in to our monthly audio adventures and join the Genesis Exploration Squad as they travel back in time to experience the stories of the Bible firsthand and discover life-changing lessons. Also available is the Airship Genesis Kids Study Bible packed with the biblical content specifically written for kids from trusted Bible teacher, Dr. David Jeremiah. You can also download our Airship Genesis mobile game on your favorite smart device and play as your favorite characters in this puzzle adventure game as the squad experiences the life of Jesus firsthand. Just go to your app store and type the keywords Airship Genesis. For more details or to order a copy of the Airship Genesis Kids Study Bible, visit our website at airshipgenesis.com Bible. That's airshipgenesis.com slash Bible. The week prior to Thanksgiving, two men were chatting over lunch. One man asked the other, What is your family having for Thanksgiving this year? His friend breathed a heavy sigh and exclaimed, Relatives. That answer may make us smile, but gathering with family and friends at Thanksgiving is a privilege. The effort to reconnect for the holiday is truly a labor of love. 
Celebrating together allows us to follow Paul's admonition to rejoice with those who rejoice and grieve with those who grieve. It's what God intended for families to do, biological as well as spiritual families who gather together at Thanksgiving. Now this is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Celebrate God's reason for family this Thanksgiving on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.